Well, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we're looking at verses 11 through 21. And just as you're turning there and, and as a reminder to what you've, you've heard me mention several times regarding the book of Revelation, we began with these letters that were sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And these were Christians that were already enduring various levels of persecution. They were already experiencing challenges from the culture and, and uh, you know, temptations towards idolatry because everything in their economy was, was connected to idolatry. And so a few had even been martyred for their faith. Others were experiencing that social and economic hardship um, and, and even compromised by that. And so that they needed to repent and come out of that if they were to remain as a faithful church. If the, if the lampstand was not going to be removed, they, they needed to repent. They needed to return to the Lord in faith. And so much of John's vision warns believers to expect persecution to expect temptation. Expect it t- today. Expect it as you leave here. Expect it in this moment. And there's this temptation that, that's coming from our own flesh. The temptations of the devil, the temptations of the world. So they were about to endure, as those original readers, they were about to endure a much greater level of persecution than they had experienced in the centuries that would follow. Um, but through it all, the church continued to grow. You know, it, it continued to have a, a, a global reach. It expanded through uh, the, the, the trials and through the persecution. God's hand of protection was upon them as the saints persevered through every trial and tribulation, and he continues to do that through his church today. And for many of them, the vision of heaven in chapters 19 and 21, I believe, is, is what is precisely what the Spirit would bring to their minds, what He would use to give them the strength to persevere. It's the vision of, of what awaits, of their vindication, and of the, the glory of heaven. And so we've already kind of anticipated that in our songs, but we'll continue to reflect upon what they were anticipating in this passage. Just like it it was in the, the first church, the, the universal church experiences various levels of physical, social, and economic persecution. That's, that's an ongoing thing throughout this present age, from Christ's first to his second coming. We, we can anticipate it. We can expect it. I, I don't believe that's going to weaken over time. I think it continues to grow. Uh, I think, I think we, we will face even a greater level of persecution right before Christ's return. I think that's a a proper reading of Revelation. Uh, And I I do mention this because I don't want us to fall into the assumption that this book was primarily only written for that original audience. Or the alternative error that that it's only meant for that very last generation right before his return. And for some of us, that means, well, it's, it's clearly not yet, right? It's clearly not going to happen right now. And so we've got some time, you know, we can kind of rest can enjoy this season or something. And, and no, it's, it's, that spiritual battle is being waged now in our lives. And so we need to take this seriously. Whether or not Christ could return in your lifetime does not make this text any more or less applicable to you right now. 
And you are called to walk by faith in the promises of God, regardless of how soon the fulfillment of those promises will take place. You don't know. Right? God is the one in charge of that. He is sovereign. We trust in him and we, and we actively pursue him. So Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slow. He should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that's the connection here. I think that same theme is in this passage. The idea that God would delay his coming is proof of his patience toward the unrepentant. But there will come a day when that opportunity is removed. And so the summary of this passage is this, the appearance of the king in vengeance marks the end of the opportunity for repentance. That, that, that places a great deal of pressure on now, on the present, right, to repent, to make sure that we, have, that we are aligned with the will of God and his glory. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been given this reminder of the, the day of Christ's return. And what that represents, not only for the saints, but for those who don't believe, for those who remain unrepentant. But we get this picture not, not to simply leave us in terror, but to, to fill us with hope. That one day, every temptation, every enemy will be removed so that we might worship you as you are worthy to receive. Perfect worship and praise from glorified saints. And so, Lord, convict us of our sin. Help us to see how our sin does hinder us from worshiping you rightly. And then comfort us by the word of the gospel. Lord, may that bring a tremendous amount of, of joy and relief as we come, knowing that Christ has taken our penalty upon himself. And the punishment that we deserve, even as we read about the wrath that's being poured out here, we recognize that, that we deserve to be the recipients of that very wrath. And so may this picture even magnify our love for Christ. That we would depart here desiring to, to honor Him. It's in His name that we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name, written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Amen. This is God's holy word. You do see some similar language there, especially of the birds gorging on the flesh that that we read in Ezekiel, our passage of Ezekiel earlier. This is just a a common picture in prophecy of God's judgment, of God carrying out his judgment, and it's a terrifying picture. I did it. It is meant to to strike an emotion of, of fear. And so this chapter marks the end of another cycle that depicts aspects of Christ's reign and judgment throughout this present age and culminating in his second coming. We've seen this cycle with the the pattern of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls where where all of those ended in this culmination of Christ's second coming. Well, we'll see the same thing here. This is the culmination of this this next cycle, concluding with the return of Christ in judgment. So really, this passage is not in question, even from the various schools of interpretation and revelation. We all kind of come to this recognizing this is the return of Christ. And this is his judgment being carried out. And so the first passage of this chapter is simply a reflection with reverence upon the appearance of the king. That's your first blank, and if you're following on the outline, verses 11 through 16 is the appearance of the king. Right after witnessing the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, John sees another vision, but now he sees it from the perspective of earth. He's looking up and he sees the heaven opened and this white horse. The rider is faithful and true. He's got the same title that was assigned to the author of the letter that was sent to the church in Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 14. So we, we know who the rider is. It's the Son of Man. It's the one we saw a vision of, of, the, of his glory in chapter 1. This is the Messiah. And in his first coming, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, representing his coming in peace to redeem his covenant people. Now we see him riding upon a white horse, which represents the fact that he comes to judge and to make war. And that's what's made explicit here in verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So furthermore, he has eyes that are like a flame of fire. And we've seen that as well before. In the description in chapter 1 of the Son of Man, verse 14, it said he, he had eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, we saw it as a description of the Son of God in the letter to the church in Thyatira, in chapter 2, verse 18. So these, this is all a description of Jesus. The implication seems to be that his, his judgment 
is based upon what he witnesses, not only from the actions of the men of the inhabitants of the earth, but also their thoughts and intentions. Right? He, he sees everything. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's not a capricious judge, just randomly taking people and judging them. He, he judges based upon their conduct and their, and their thoughts, their sin against him. It's a just judgment that he brings. And so the, the abominations that people have committed against him are brought to judgment here in his second coming. We also see him defined as one wearing many diadems on his head. We sang, crown him with many crowns. In one sense, he, he already has those crowns. He's already wearing them. He already has that sovereign authority. But we know also that we, when we get there, we'll be laying our crowns at his feet, gathering around him giving him the glory he's due. So remember, there, there's two kinds of crowns in Revelation. There's the, the wreath of victory, that, that's Stephanos in, Stephanos in Greek, and the, the crown of royalty, which di- is diadema, which here they, they actually translate diadem. So those are the, the two kinds of crowns, and here it's diadem. So he's talking about his crown of royalty. It's his authority. Uh, it's, it's him coming in his kingly office to subdue the enemies, right? to, to conquer them, to defeat them. He comes with sovereign authority to judge all mankind. And he bears a name in verse, at the end of verse 12 that says, no one knows but, he, but himself. Now, this is a name that is written, which would presumably be different than the name that he's called in the very next verse, Verse 13, uh, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the Word of God. And then we would also think that maybe it's different from the one that's given in verse 16, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That same name, King of kings, was given to the Lamb back in chapter 17, verse 14. And so we know all of these names and all of these references are, for, are to Jesus and it's, it's often the case, though, that, that in Revelation, the vision contains symbolism, and even in these titles, right, they're symbolic of something, of the character of God. And so, even as we were thinking about the harlot in chapter 17, verse 5, it said that he was given a name of mystery, and yet in the very same sentence, it says what that name was. So it's not as if the name was hidden or unknown. It's just, it's, it's a mystery until it's revealed. That name was Babylon. And so, so we could call uh, that harlot by that name. The mystery is, is being revealed by the revelation. So here, regarding Christ's unknown name, it seems to be that it was only hidden until it was time to be revealed. And that time for all mankind is his second coming. Right, that name that's been a mystery will no longer be mysterious. The name that they have rejected all their lives, they will now recognize is King of King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They will see his authority and they will submit to it. So Rick Phillips says Jesus thus appears in judgment not to become ruler 
overall, but already possessing ultimate lordship. He comes wearing many crowns. He's not taking crowns in order to wear them. He's already wearing those crowns. And so, wearing many diadems of rule and dominion on his sovereign head. Rick Phillips continues, he says, What he is by right, he now enforces by actual rule, taking the ends of the earth as his possession, which is discussed in Psalm 2.8. So Christ is presently reigning from heaven, upon which... Or, or, but upon his return, he will execute his judgment as the culmination of that phase of his reign. It's uh, consistent with what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The implication is that he's already reigning. He is reigning, and he will continue to reign from heaven until all of his enemies have been finally defeated. This does not imply that he will cease to reign after his enemies are defeated. No, Revelation 11 verse 15 says that he will reign forever and ever. But the final defeat of his enemies marks the end of this present phase of his reign. During this church age between his first and second coming. Right? We recognize he is reigning, but he comes to end that phase of his reign where he is contested in his reign by the remnants of sin, by the remnants of wicked and evil that remain on this earth. So that's what's being pictured by this passage is, is the very end, the culmination of this reign from heaven as he comes down descending upon the, wor the world, bringing judgment. Christ has become the executioner. And it's, it's a gory picture. His robe is literally baptized in blood in verse 13, which our ESV translates as dipped. Now, some would argue that this robe was dipped, and that's the only pop, proper translation of it. Uh, but that makes little sense of the context, I think. Did the writer dip his robe prior to this invasion? Did he, like, stop along his way to earth to, to find a river and, and, you know, wash his robe in it and then don it in order to bring about the execution? Well, some have si tried to clear up the confusion by saying, well, no, no, it's a reference to the blood that he shed on the cross. It's a reference back to the cross, and he's coming in that. Well, but that flips this idea on its head, because there he bore the wrath of God. Here he's coming in wrath, in vengeance. And, and certainly there's a connection there. But I think the idea is much more consistent to say that Christ is executing judgment upon the earth. And it's based upon an allusion to Isaiah 63, verse 3, where he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. And we know that this was in mind in John as he's writing this vision because we see the same kind of idea in verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. No doubt this is a reflection that John is making. And so the executioner's robe is sprinkled or spattered with the blood from those that he has slain by the sword that's protruding from his mouth. 
in verse 15, which makes the connection to his judgment in the proclamation of the word of God. And it's the reason why we cannot refuse to, to proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. We can't shy away from, from declaring these passages of judgment. So this was a previous description of the Son of Man in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. He bears a, a sharp sword in his mouth. And, and this is really consistent. This first, these first uh, are verses 11 through 16, or actually 12 through 16, make this chiastic structure, which I've def- tried to define before. It, it's, it's very common in Hebrew literature, in ancient literature, it's even in the Greek as well, to, to write in such a way, remember the, the verses and the paragraph breaks, that's all our best way of, of kind of presenting the Word of God, but those, those, that's not how the original text was written. Right? Those weren't there. And so the way they would bracket off subjects and topics that are being discussed was through themes, right? Starting with a point and then ending with that same point, right? So there's a, a bracket, sort of a bookend to the thought. Well, what you find here is in verse 12, you have a reference to this unknown name. Well, that unknown name is then revealed in verse 16 as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You go within one frame within that, and you have the garment that's soaked in blood in verse 13a that is then also related to the treading of the winepress at the end of verse 15. You go within that, and there's this frame of the Word of God mentioned in verse 13b uh, that is a sharp sword coming from his mouth in verse 15a, which leaves us with verse 14, sort of the, the climax. What is, what is all of this pointing to? Verse 14 where the focus is upon those who appear with the king. It's leading us to reflect upon this army from heaven that is following the leadership of their king. The army is clothed in white and pure linen, and they are riding upon white horses just like their king. This army is made up of conquering saints who are finally vindicated by their victorious king. And so the revelation of, of the king's appearance highlights his victory and our vindication. I both are accomplished by Christ as he returns in judgment, and we follow and receive the benefits and the spoils of the war. And there is a sense in which we are already tasting that victory now. First uh, John, remember John, same author here. First John, he's reflecting on this idea in chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so by faith, we overcome the world even now. We trust in the promises that we're reading about here. We presently enjoy that victory as we put on the whole armor of God, as Paul discusses in Ephesians 6. So Christ has accomplished the work that we actively participate in by faith. And so the appearance of the king is then followed by a description of the vengeance of the king in verses 17 through 21. And we'll, we'll not spend nearly as long on this section but it is a, a picture of, of the king 
bringing judgment, executing judgment now upon the earth. An angel calls the birds to gather for this great supper of God in verse 17. And, and the, the supper is a feast for the birds to gorge themselves upon the armies of the earth who had gathered with the beast in opposition to the Lord. And so they're all now gathered together. They think they're about to enter into this, into this great battle, which they have a shot at winning. And in fact, all they're doing is being gathered as if they're, they're being uh, placed before the birds of the, of the heavens to come down and gorge upon, the vultures to come and, and gorge upon their flesh. And so they're, they're gathering for what they think is victory, but they're going to face their defeat swiftly and suddenly. And so this alludes to the language of Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20, where birds and beasts of the field are called to assemble together for a feast upon the mighty, the princes, and the warriors of the earth. Here it adds to that the idea that it's not only those who are in high positions of authority, but it's everyone who is small as well. Just as God saves those who are, are great and small, he's also condemning those who are great and small. No one is left outside of his, his salvation or his judgment, right? He, he reaches to the, uh, the heights and depths of the earth, everywhere in between. So this great supper of God is clearly in contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. Right? The connection is intentional. Those who are united to Christ by faith will attend that marriage feast. They'll be ushered in to enjoy the blessings and benefits of that eternal rest and the celebration of their marriage. Those who do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior will be feasted upon. They'll attend the great supper of God. It's a, as Michael Wilcox says, the latter is a macabre parody of the former. So two, two stages of this judgment are described at the close of the passage. In verse 20, you have the beast and the false prophet who are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And then going from the leaders of this rebellion to the rest of the inhabitants of the earth in verse 21, who are slain by the sword that protruded from the mouth of the Son of Man. And so the grapes of wrath are ripened here by their own idolatry and immorality for the coming of the Lord in judgment. And Hebrews 10, verse 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, is a terrifying picture of God's vengeance in, in pouring out his wrath that is clearly alluded to here by that treading of the winepress. The, the blood that's spattering the garments of the Son of Man, of the Lamb who is coming in judgment. But in, in the middle of that passage in Isaiah 63, it says that the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. The return of Christ ushers believers into the consummation of their eternal celebration while it condemns unbelievers to their eternal torment. Jesus is faithful to keep his covenant promises. And that's wonderful news for the believer. We say, amen, come Lord Jesus. But it is terrifying news. Very bad news for those who reject Christ. 
right? When Jesus came in peace, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God in the place of his covenant people. Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath, which was overflowing with the immorality of his enemies. That he took our sin and shame upon himself and he paid the penalty of death on our behalf. This is, is good news. It's the good news of the substitutionary atonement that Christ accomplished for all who place their faith in him. It's how we overcome the world through Christ, through his redeeming work. But for those who reject him, there's this other preparation that's taking place, right? There's two preparations, two meals that are being prepared for, the marriage supper of the Lamb as well as the great supper of God. Both have already been determined by God. Both promised and declared they're, they're, they're going to happen, and you will be at one or the other. And so we simply await his perfect timing in carrying out his sovereign purpose. The fact that Jesus can keep his name hidden until the appointed time is indicative of his ultimate authority, his sovereign lordship. It's, it's only possible to know his name on his terms as he has revealed himself to us. Whether or not we, we do so determines our experience for all eternity. If we acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords, or if we reject him, right, will, it, will we celebrate or will we experience torment? All people eventually submit to the reign of Christ. Right? Everyone will bow before the King of kings. Either they will submit to his offer of peace or they will surrender before his righteous judgment. And so here his offer, John chapter 5, verse 24, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is, this is from Christ, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so this terrifying picture of judgment is not meant to terrify believers. The recipients of the blessings of salvation are to respond with gratitude and praise. We're to, to lift up the attributes of God that are all reflected upon and revealed in this first passage we looked at, verses 11 through 16, because of his judgment. The attributes of God revealed here about his coming judgment should result in the loudest songs of praise. And so in our song of response, we'll sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken. And in the last verse, we encourage one another with these words. We say, haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. And so let us enjoy singing that song in response, filled with faith and joy of our salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for even these difficult passes of judgment because they, they cause us to reflect upon 
First of all, what it is that our sin deserves so that we learn to hate our sin more and more and so that we would turn away from that sin and turn to the only one who gives us the strength to be rescued out from that bondage to sin, to be brought in to the kingdom of of light, out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom to give him praise and glory. And so even as we reflect upon his return and his coming in judgment, we're reminded that he took that judgment in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He drank the cup that we should have drank. And he did so willingly. So how can we not respond by singing praise and with grateful hearts and partaking of the Lord's Supper that he himself instituted as a reminder to us and more than a reminder, as a, as a means of strengthening our faith, as a means of sending us out prepared for the trials and temptations that we'll face. Lord, how can we not respond in that with our whole being? And so, Lord, enable us to do that. We cannot do that apart from your Spirit, and so enable us to respond now for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.